Welcome to Wealth Stories, a podcast brought to you by London Capital, offering straight talk and clear thinking around stories of wealth. Every episode, Robert Paul is joined by an expert from London Capital and a special guest to share their experiences and insights around topics ranging from divorce to the psychological effects of coming into wealth. Welcome to the latest episode of Wealth Stories. My name is Robert Paul, partner and head of the US Family Office at London and Capital. And I am delighted to be joined on this episode by Elliot Cowan from CMS. Welcome, Elliot. Thanks for having me here, Rob. Pleasure. And from uh, my colleague, Dan Sawyer, from London Capital's private investment office. Hi, Dan. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Well, you're in the building, Dan, so uh, it was very easy. Um, so we are talking today about all things uh, private business and business exit. But before we crack on with that, perhaps it'd be useful if the pair of you uh, give us a sort of two-minute intro to yourselves and your businesses, uh, and then we can get into the, uh, into the detail. So, uh, Elliot, after you. Thanks, Rob. I'm a corporate partner at a law firm called CMS. CMS is a full-service international law firm with specialities in corporate finance, employment, commercial, and all other legal areas where a business would expect support. I am a corporate partner, and a lot of what I do is work with tech companies on fundraisings and also venture capital funds making equity investments. And I'm also heavily involved in M&A, mergers and acquisitions, with extensive experience assisting owner-managed businesses being sold, whether that's to a trade buyer, to private equity, or to multinational corporations. Perfect. Dan? I'm, uh, I'm one of the executive directors and client advisors in our private investment office, uh, and I lead the personal wealth offering which is geared to entrepreneurial clients. And that's both pre-exit and post-exit as well. Brilliant. Looks like we've got the right guys on the table then. That's, uh, that's fortuitous. And, and so today we're going to try and talk through maybe some of the legal, financial, and I would say emotional aspects for private individuals who run and own businesses uh, going through that process of exit. However, I thought it would be a good place to start at the very beginning uh, with you, Elliot. And I think, you know, when... When individuals start businesses, I would imagine uh, there's a light bulb moment or, or an entrepreneurial streak. I, I wonder how often they start with the end in mind, in your experience, and, and should they? Well, the answer to the second question is, in an ideal world, yes. And some of the businesses, but I have to concede, it's probably a minority of businesses actually, well, there's a couple of businesses I've advised who were sold, who when they were created when they started out, they actually knew who the buyer, or they had a buyer in mind. So right. That is very rare. Yes. Clearly. But what makes life a lot easier when you are being sold, say five, six, seven, eight years down the line, is when the business is being run, particularly in its infancy, that I suppose the simple stuff is done well. And what I mean by that is keeping proper records of who owns shares, who owns IP, making sure things like tax planning, I don't mean individual, I actually mean kind of corporate tax planning yeah. of the business is done properly and advice is, proper advice is given. Because what I have experienced when, when you are selling a company, when a buyer will be doing due diligence, whether it's legal, financial, technical, often when the problems arise or problems are uncovered, it is due to things that are done in the relatively early in the company's life. And I imagine 
you know, most people, whether it be they're starting a new idea or going out on their own or, or setting their own business up, the day-to-day is keeping the thing afloat. Yes. Uh, actually making some money so someone might eventually yeah. want to buy it in the future and, and not share records, you know, the tax structure. You know, but actually, the, what would you say are the, are the sort of really simple aspects that one should think about when they're sort of venturing off? So three things. One is making it very clear who owns shares and not, I was going to say inadvertently, but not promising people shares. So we recently closed a quite a large fundraising for a company who raised £25 million. And five years ago, they engaged a CFO on a very basic agreement. But actually in that agreement, it said that CFO gets some shares. It was never really, it was never signed. But right. it was, it's, that kind of messiness will, wouldn't say it will scare a buyer, but it's a big red flag for a buyer and they want that cleaned up. So certainly making it clear who owns shares, not promising people things in a kind of, in a, in a, in a half-baked way. So keeping track of your cap table. And the other thing, particularly with companies that are IP rich, so t- particularly tech companies, is making it clear who owns the IP. And I think on the, on the tax thing, is keeping it as simple as possible. It's the law of unintended consequences. Yeah. The more complicated you make things, the chances are, whilst you're, you're trying to achieve objective A, you've actually caused problem B. Yeah. So, so let, Dan, I'm going to bring you in on this as well. So you've got two minutes to think about the answer. This was all designed around exit, but I think it's actually an interesting concept. You know, we see, uh, and I imagine you see people, you know, venturing off existing clients, you know, because think about it, if you sold one business and you are that entrepreneurial type of character, you may then start start again yeah. right, and do something else. You know, what what advice would we, or what are the, some of the basics that we put in place with families at that early stage that help protect them in case it doesn't go right, dare I say it, um, and the business doesn't sell for millions in the future? Yeah, I, I think a few things. Number one would be, and this is really, really basic uh, advice, is not starting to behave as though the business has been sold and the transaction has completed before the transaction has been completed. And again, I can share some some, um, some scare stories. Don't spend the money before it's landed. Don't spend the money before it's landed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think in terms of the work that we do with entrepreneurial clients before a transaction has happened, a lot of that actually is very similar to what Elliot's been saying in terms of making sure that the basics are done correctly um so things like wills making sure pension input allowances are maximized really understanding what the purpose of the capital will be for that individual and family after the transaction has happened that is the basis that we will use to implement a plan a wealth management plan post the event so getting a clear understanding of direction of travel and what that looks and feels like is um it is important yeah absolutely and then so so let's move on from the, the person who set the business up and let's say okay we, we now have a successful business um and let's focus on on rather than fundraising and, and dilution process let's let's focus on they're going to come and, and sell this business or a significant chunk of this business at least when that idea pops into someone's mind or it's popped into someone's mind by someone else saying, I'd like to have a bit of your business. What are the first things that, you know, when you sit down with these, these clients, you go, right, let's, let's get these lined up. I normally get engaged either as companies I've advised for a long time uh, who want to be sold or it's a mandate I receive from a corporate finance house. If it's a company that I've advised for a long time, one of two things happens. Either A, they say we've been approached. The other instance is they say, we would like, we're now at a stage, we would like to be sold. And at that point, I would 
probably introduce them to some of the corporate financiers that I know whose whose role is in effect to go out and find yeah. a buyer and then charge a fee. If they are in the world where they have been approached by a buyer, we would we'd want to see, we'd want to be involved in negotiating the term sheet. The term sheet would be the document that sets out the high-level terms of the transaction. If, however, they're looking to be sold, we've got some time, we've got some runway, I would start, I would almost be running a due diligence exercise on them. because, Or I'd be running the due diligence exercise that I'd expect a buyer to be running on them. I'd be asking the questions I mentioned before, as in, are you confident that the, the shareholdership, the cap table is correct? Are you confident that your IP is fine? Are you confident everything's with the tax is all completely up to date? It's very likely they will, they, will, they will identify skeletons because that is what commonly happens. The challenge we then have is once a skeleton is identified is A, can something be, can it be rectified such that when a buyer does diligence them, this is no longer a problem? If that, that clearly is the preferred scenario, Rob. If the answer is we cannot do that, it is what is the story we can tell? How can we paper, not paper, so, but how can we present this in a more positive light? Yeah. Worst case scenario, it's a deal breaker. Normally it never is, but is this going to be reflective in price? Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. I imagine because, and Dan, you'll be able to talk to this as well from the, the psychological side, there is a lot of value using your example, approaches you on LinkedIn and says, I want to buy your business for you know many millions of pounds. Just psychologically setting what are the pros and cons what are, what are the challenges they're going to face to getting that many millions of pounds and a skeleton in the closet could have a meaningful effect on reducing that many millions of pounds and getting someone their head around it is going to be a fundamentally important part of it and you know we've talked on this podcast uh, about lots of different aspects of wealth and, and where it might come from the scenarios but one of the common denominators that keeps feeding through is the psychological side of of all of this I don't know, Dan, maybe, you know, imagine you've had clients come in and go, I'm going to sell, it's definitely going to sell for this amount of money. Just having that sort of reset position can be hugely valuable and, and, and fundamentally saves a lot of emotional headache down the line. Yeah, it, undoubtedly, undoubtedly true. I mean, in, in the vast majority of the transactions that uh, we see um, from an advisor's perspective, these are typically mid-market transactions that are probably somewhere between Five million, ten million, maybe at the lower end, and a hundred million pounds. They're sort of owner-managed and owner-operated businesses, and which in some cases the founders have been involved with for many, many years. So there, there becomes a uh, an, an enormous emotional attachment for for the founder to the business. It can be a big part of their identity, a big part of their day-to-day community. So almost unavoidable that there's there's a there's a big emotional attachment in in that context. And I think that is where having good advice around the transaction, but also I would say this obviously from a buyer's perspective, that the proceeds, it becomes really important because as an advisor's job, our role is really to try and remove the emotion from the situation and present facts yeah. to make well-informed decisions. And I think that going back to your previous point, Dan, about don't spend the money too early, mm. which yes, that's very, very <laughs> clearly very sensible advice. Let's go back to my LinkedIn scenario. You get an email on LinkedIn. Oh, we want to buy. We'd like to have a discussion about acquiring. Yeah. First of all, that actually doesn't that doesn't actually mean anything. <laughs> Basic point. But even when you get to the term sheet stage, where the, the buyer will put outline the terms of their offer, I think there's an assumption, slightly naively, that that means it's a bit like buying a house. That person, the buyer, is going to give me the consideration, the value I get is all going to be in cash. All up front. 
and on day one. Yeah. And that does not often, it does happen sometimes, but often it does not. And there's a myriad of different ways that a buyer can structure a transaction. You know, two, um, two elements is, are they paying all cash or are they paying a mixture of cash and shares in themselves? The second thing is, when do you get that money is, or that consideration? Is it all in day one? Is it subject? Is it being paid in installments? Is it subject to an earnout or partially subject to an earnout? An earnout is where you get value based on the future performance of your business after it's being sold. Usually you'll have very little, if any, control of the business. So you could on paper give uh, an offer for quite a large number, but actually when you delve into the detail... And we go into Dan's world, you actually might not be walking away with that much cash, especially once you pay CJT. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And that one of the questions we're very, I'm very frequently asked, I should say, is you, you, you say that you're a specialist in entrepreneurial clients and business exit scenarios, but what does that actually mean? And for me, one of the biggest, the, the most important answers to that is that deals and transactions can be structured in all sorts of different ways you touched on this Elliot a, a private equity deal will typically involve some degree of rollover for the entrepreneur into sweet equity and there's a, a subsequent exit further down the line a trade sale can look different an employee ownership trust transaction can look different a, again so understanding the liquidity profile and the tax profile of the proceeds that the individual entrepreneur will receive and as you say over what time is really important and modeling that out and making a sensible plan based on that liquidity profile is is quite a big part of the uh, the process that we would we would typically go through and and dan you talked about you know the emotional side of a, an owner you know someone who's who's put their life into building their business up and and it's their baby and their world and and their social life and all the aspects yeah. that that come with that and then, you know, one of the things I find interesting about the ultimate exit, you know, typically at that point, they're going to walk away, right? And so, Elliot, I'd be interested to hear your view on this, you know, is that when I've come across situations like that, actually, in many ways, that person being heavily involved in the process is not what you want, because they're not the commodity being sold, but traditionally, they've been such a big driver of, yeah. the, of the business. And so actually trying to keep them away from the sale transaction and, and being the one selling their business is quite important, but it's hard. Yes. I think in answer to your question, from my experience, there's a, there's a bit of a difference as to the age of the seller, actually. If the sellers are, I wouldn't say that young is probably not a helpful word, but if the sellers have been running that business for seven, five, six, seven years, they're emotional attachment is actually a little bit less, largely because they envisage probably selling the business and doing something else, either starting something else or they, or they view it as an ineffective chapter in their life. It's not a life's work Correct. they've created. And it's a big thing for them because this is, only, this is a business usually they've created, which they've been working on for 20, 25, 30 years. And you are right. These are not the people who are the future of the business as the buyers identify. And then the interesting question is, what is the buyer's expectation as to the seller's future involvement. And there is a bit of a difference, which is in my example of the younger founder or the younger owner of the business, more often than not, they are expected to stay on for one or two years. Usually, there are exceptions, but usually if it's a more mature business, they want the, the, the former sellers to be around for quite... They, they do want them to be there for a transition because it's clearly 
very unsettling for the management team of the company being sold if the founders just go. Yeah. But it's quite a short period. But there are exceptions. I mean, I, I sold a business creating banknotes uh, three or four years ago, and the again, it was four brothers that ran that, and the, the, the brother who was the CEO, I think he stayed on for four years. So there are exceptions. I, I think that's quite unusual. There must be all sorts of jokes about they were just printing money and all that sort of yes. stuff in that business. I mean, Christ, I'm, I'm just trying to retain myself, to be honest here. Uh, thanks. Dan is laughing uh, aggressively for those who can't see. But so, Dan, that's interesting. So let's talk about those two different scenarios from a wealth management perspective. You know, the young seller who maybe sold for less. Yeah. You know, I imagine what we what you're talking about to that, those people, is different to... Uh, you know, the end event, as it were, as Elliot was describing, you know, the, maybe the more mature seller um, who's probably, that's it. They're, you know, their life's work is done. They're cashing in. They're tired. Different clients. Different clients completely. And it's interesting you say that, actually, Elliot, because my experience over the last, I would say, sort of 12, 18 months has been that the vast majority of the clients that we've seen coming through to us who have experienced a liquidity event of some kind have been in that younger client camp. And there was a phase post-COVID where really it was pretty much tech that was dominant yes. in uh, the transaction picture in, in the markets. And for a younger client, the key thing from a wealth management point of view that I've observed is flexibility. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about purpose of capital and attributing purpose to capital in the context of wealth management and really understanding that. If we flip that on its head for an older client, a more mature client who is in their 60s, that is really a retirement sale. It's very, very easy, or easier, I shouldn't say easy, easier for a client who is more mature to say, this is exactly what I want this money to be used for. X amount is going to the children for their university fees. I need X amount to live on and so on and so forth. And that makes our life a little bit easier from a structuring point of view and a, uh, an investment management approach point of view. For a, for a younger client, and we've seen, I, I think one of the youngest clients I've taken on uh, recently was in their late 30s. So to look that far into the future and say, okay, I'm probably going to retire uh, in and around you know, 50, 55, it's a huge... That's a big leap. I'd be right? amazed if they can give you that number. Yeah, they can't. Any sort of clarity. They can't. That will be, you know, a sort of finger in the air. Exactly. It's almost a little bit, it becomes almost a bit meaningless. Yeah. A bit yeah that was going to be what I was going to use yeah. the words. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And, and, and that's why for the for clients who are in that position, the key is flexibility. Yeah. Because a lot of it we need to accept we don't know. It is the key also, you know, that young entrepreneur in the late 30s um, exiting, you know, is part of your, your role to say, they're probably going to go again, right? You, yeah. you know, unless they exit significantly and have a sudden change of art and that the beach looks attractive, you know, for the next 60 years or whatever it's going to be, they're probably going to go again. So I imagine the conversation is much about let's put some in case it goes wrong yeah. when you go again. You know, you're not infallible. Yes, you've done it really well, but it doesn't mean you're going to do it every time really well. And let's put some to the next business. You know, whereas the person, as you said, who's more mature, and this is the lump sum. Again, I'm going to challenge you on, on that in the, you know, often these people aren't stripping loads of money out of their businesses. Mm. So when we talk about they know what they want to do with the money, mm. do they? Yeah, I, I, I think they... They have I, an idea of it, yeah, they conceptually. Have an idea, they have a sense, but there is always a transitional period, right? And 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 this, again, is to the point of it being an emotional experience. With I think that, that, that period of time post-sale is often one of the most challenging for an entrepreneur 
because, as we've said, they've been head down focusing on their businesses in some cases for many, many years. They then have this very full-on period where the, the transaction process is underway. They're spinning lots of plates working uh, on maintaining the business uh, and making sure that numbers don't slip and so on, but also in some cases quite involved in a transaction process. And then in the scenarios where the transaction is successful, everything just stops. And there's very often a period of downtime, and rightly so. But working out what next is is also tricky and, and challenging. And it's a totally new challenge. Suddenly they have this pot yeah, of money. Exactly. Right? And, uh, and what to do with it. You know, the ideal world for us always, you know, you mentioned a minute ago about you tend to get involved, you know, 12 months after the deal that Elliot's been working on today. Actually, in many ways, the ideal for us is to get get in there and talking to these families early, right? yeah, the 100%. earliest as possible. Yeah, 100%. If nothing else, to be that psychological confidant, you know, on the shade long, <laughs> you know, um, you know, through that process and what different numbers mean and the permutations, because as Elliot alluded to, those numbers can change. Yeah, 100%. And I, I think there's also two... The, the way I sort of look at this process from a client's perspective is there are two sets of balance sheets as well, right? There's the corporate balance sheet and then there's the personal balance sheet. And there is the impact that the corporate transaction will have on the personal balance sheet. And that then is in our world, right? Uh, there's, there's different tax exposures. There are things that you can do to mitigate those tax exposures in advance of an exit that you can't do afterwards. So it is undoubtedly worth having that discussion about what is the personal impact of that corporate transaction before it happens. I like that concept of personal balance sheet and corporate balance sheet, which I imagine for a owner-founded business, they view as the same thing. I think they do. I think because, I mean, to your point earlier, it's... um, very often you see probably I would I would argue about 80% of a family's overall balance sheet is tied up in this one single unlisted illiquid privately owned company which either I imagine they're viewing as their money already mm. or they put no value to it at all yeah you yeah. know and it probably is as binary as that it, it is. I, I, th- I think it is I think in most cases probably it's the former in in, in my experience but in our world, again, this is where it's, it's in, the perception of risk becomes quite interesting because in our world, having that percent, that higher percentage of your overall wealth tied up in that one single illiquid privately held business is like the apex of a pyramid of risk. But from an entrepreneur or vendor's point of view, it's they perceive it as completely in their control um, and, that, and, and therefore they see it as less And that's risky. a really interesting point because... You know, what I find fascinating, I'd be interested to hear your view on this, is, is you're absolutely right, 80% of someone's wealth tied up in an unlisted single business that they run and control, in some ways, in their own mind, is less risky, and then they have this exit event, exit event suddenly this value is crystallised, and then when they talk to us about investing, suddenly, you know, a basket of, of, of you know, blue-chip equities, for example, seems risky for them. And they say, well, should I have it all in equities? And that is so fascinating because they've just come from an unlisted, single, illiquid stock, and they're, they're perceiving that as being less risky than a basket of blue chips. It's about control, though, isn't it? It's entirely about control. But I, I, I think that's where, we, you know, I keep referring back to this understanding the purpose of capital. If you march into a meeting with a client who's just sold their business for you know tens of millions of pounds and just immediately start talking about 
equities versus fixed income versus alternatives, it, it doesn't mean anything to, to them at all. And it's a little off-putting. But it's, it's understanding what they want the money that they have just realised to do for them and why plugging a percentage of that proceeds into a portfolio that's constructed in a particular way, why that is a, it's a, it's a means to an end uh, as opposed to, you know, of itself being a sensible idea. Would you say that actually in many ways the planning or the structuring at that point is more important to the family than what stock or bond we're going to buy? Yeah, you, you need to make make sense of, of what you're doing. And the two aspects of planning and structuring are mitigating tax, but also allowing for the right level of access and liquidity um, for the capital. And you need to understand what the purpose of that is in order to recommend a structure that is, is fit for purpose. So yeah, absolutely. It's all about and it, 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 structuring also helps the client to think through a long-term lens, which is really important from a, a wealth management point of view. And I imagine that there is a time element to that because, you know, if someone, let's say, sells for 50 million, you mm. know, plug a number out of the sky, but actually, you know, they only need 10 million to provide them their income to maintain their lifestyle. Yeah. It, you know, it's an interesting conversation if they complete the transaction, and get 50 million. Day two, they sit down with Dan Sawyer, who says, oh, you need to give 40 million away. You know, in some <laughs> guise or another, a structure, your family. Like, Hold on a second. I've worked my whole life to get this 50 million. You're saying, you know, that, that, but that might be 100% the right thing for them. Mm. Fit exactly what they're looking for. But just, you know, conceptually is, is quite a hill to climb. A hundred percent. And and that again, to, to the point we were touching on earlier about clients being younger, that, that is one of the discussion points we've been having. Very often, if a client is in their late 30s, 40s, let's say, and they have children who are 10, maybe, or, or younger, a frequent conversation that I will have is it's not the right time to be making outright gifts to those children right now before they know who future spouses will be. They want to make sure children remain engaged and motivated in their studies and so on. So making outright gifts to children, whilst it might make sense from a purely inheritance tax point of view, because you have excess capital that you won't likely consume throughout your lifetime, that's where having a a long-term plan is sensible, because that's something that we can say, look, this is something that over time it will make sense to do, but for now, let's put it on the back burner and let's concentrate on what we need to know and understand right now, and then we will revisit this in, in future. Elliot, I'm, I'm always interested, you know, we touched on some, you know, talking about some disasters, but we don't mm. necessarily go down that in case they're listening. Um, uh, but you know, w- w- what are the big things that tend to cause hiccups? You know, you mentioned skeletons in the closet, but yeah. you know, in reality, most skeletons in the closet, unless it's fraudulent or, uh, or, or there's some, you know, intrinsic uh, malicious problem, are solvable or, or, or you can explain them and, and they might affect value, but, you know, they can get out. Well, where do you see things really going wrong? First of all, about skeletons, yes. Skeletons can usually be resolved, but as you said, Rob, either A, there'll be a price reduction and or B, time and cost will be spent on the deal solving that problem. So it's to be avoided. So a few things that go, that go wrong. First of all is time. Time kills exits. And the reason for that is the buyer detects the timetable and either A, it goes usually it'll go on longer than envisaged, and A, as I said, financial results slip. B, an external event happens, which at the moment is entirely po- given the last five years is clearly imminently possible. Or C, something happens in the buyer's side. 
which makes them not want to do the deal. Interesting, yeah. They could be acquired. So the longer it goes on, the more likely it is something's going to go wrong, being negative about it. That's kind of issue one. Issue two is the running of the business. And as I said before, selling a company will be a full-time job for someone. So it's where, where I've seen it go wrong is where a, a management team does not properly delegate you basically want one of the key members of the management to have no or absolutely limited involvement in running the business and that person in, in the sale process period and that person instead of doing the sale process full time or at least 80% of the time. Is that about. hard where it's sort of one person runs and drives the business and they own 100% of the shares and you know that must be challenging? The, the best way to do it is a very, have a very strong CFO or COO. You delegate as much as you can to those people. The other way you can do it is you can actually hire an interim CFO or COO who has experience of exits or fundraisings. That will be cheaper. I mean, there's a cost there, but if if there isn't someone in your business who can do that, find someone. The other thing we've seen it go wrong, which I haven't actually touched on, is the companies that I sell really kind of fall into two two categories. One is a family-owned business, in which case you actually got very few shareholders. It will be the family members. The other is where it is a a tech startup, tech scale-up. There'll be multiple shareholders. And a buyer will expect to, assuming they're doing a share sale, a bank, all the shares in the company, they'll be expecting to acquire all the shares from every single shareholder. And if we've got a couple of unhappy shareholders who don't want to sell, that can cause a problem. There are usually ways around it, but if you are running a company which is an, an unhappy ship, that can cause problems as well. But that probably goes back to when, you, when we started this conversation on if you're setting up a business... You know, one of the key things to think about maybe early on which could affect the exit is that capital structure. You know, And in that situation, if, is there some mechanism to having a, a, a right of veto over selling that can, well, can flush that out, as it were, whether someone yes. wants to sell or not? You can, you can get the capital structure right and then you can have problems with your investors. So key, it doesn't happen very often, but if, if an investor thinks you're selling for too low value... Or really too high, I imagine. Not too high. <laughs> too low. Or if you've actually fallen out with them over things in terms of the you know the lifetime of the business. Um, yeah, in the legal thinking too heavily into the legal point. Yes, in the legal documents you can you can insert what's called a drag provision, which can usually how it be drafted is if persons holding a majority of the shares want to sell, they can force everyone else to sell. The issue of drag along provisions is that they're getting too technical. They often don't work particularly well if there is some kind of, it's a private equity buyer and there's a buyout or part of the consideration is in shares or there's going to be an earn out. The more complex the buyer structures the deal, unless the drag is really, really well drafted, it often might not work, but it's still effective. Also, there's a human side to it as well. You know, if you're if you're forcing a shareholder to sell their shares who you are hoping will be involved or need to be involved in the business going forward, yeah, you know, that does not create a harmonious working environment post post deal. Correct. You know, which can cause all sorts of challenges. And buyers generally don't like buying companies where they know it is an unhappy company. I mean, I did a deal last year where it was quite an extreme situation, but for whatever reason, there was no shield disagreement in place. So they didn't have, wow. and the Articles Association, the company's kind of rule book, did not contain a drag. So you could not compel minority sellers to sell a deal. There were a couple of investors who were, fair to say, were challenging characters, had fallen out with the founder. The company was not doing particularly well. I mean, it was actually on the brink of insolvency, but they actually found 
a buyer. They were they were a small public company on AIM. And through a quirk of EIS, two of the investors worked out they'd be better off if the company gone into insolvency. Right. And they were going to refuse to, 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 to transfer their shares. Now, eventually, we had to cut a deal with them. Yeah, yeah I was going to say. Whereas, the, deal, in effect, yeah. the founder gave part of his entitlement to the consideration to them. But it was an absolute nightmare. Yeah. Christ, that does sound like horrendous. I want to touch on post-exit. Elliot, you know, you're off doing the next deal, I'm afraid, yeah. you know. Um, and Dan, we talk, we're talking to the clients sitting there with this pot of money. One thing that has been a common thread through this Well Stories podcast is, you know, it, it's quite rare that, that people don't know there has been a, a capital event. Yeah. Right? You know, it's like winning the lottery. You know, suddenly people are going to realize pretty quickly that you, you've won a bit of money. And that creates lots of interesting behaviors from people around you. Right, friends, family. If it's a tech business, suddenly they're going to know that this this tech founder has a pot of capital. Suddenly, you might get a lot of new businesses who want investment. You know, that is something that you know I would say is a big. We have a big role to play in to almost be the bad guy. Yeah, I I, I agree. We hosted an event along this line actually, and it was called time and how to spend it because for uh, one of the things that makes uh, the clients that I work with slightly different to the clients of other advisors in the firm is that very often this is a one-off capital event as opposed to earning a large amount of money over a period of time. So it happens quite quickly. And clients are then in a position where they're both time and cash rich. Whereas for other clients who are either you know high-earning finance professionals, for example, these are people that are very busy but earning large amounts of money. So there's a there's a difference there. Not necessarily a problem, but it is about encouraging clients to behave in the right way and to look after themselves properly, take their time, not make any you know vast rash decisions, not to run off and tie up large chunks of capital in very unusual you know uh, quirky investments, and uh, yeah, really just to take their time because they'll get plenty of approaches. They will get plenty of approaches and it is about apportioning your, both your time and your capital to your maximal benefit. And that's not necessarily purely financial. That's about uh, you know fulfillment and happiness and um, other uh, less tangible considerations. But uh, the big takeaway actually from that, uh, that event that, that uh, I mentioned was that it's not, and this is a little bit fluffy, but um, it's not material possessions that actually drive happiness. It's time with people and its experiences so i encourage clients to take a break you know get away clear their head and you know actually just try and enjoy themselves with people that are important to them and view the money as a facilitator for what they want to do with their lives i think that that's where we see i would say the, the best outcomes driven is where people don't get tied up in their finances per se they view that process about what their money can do for them as opposed to just looking at it you know, purely from a, a financial perspective. Yeah. No, I think it's a really interesting part of it. And um, I know a lot of ch- clients have faced a lot of challenges post-event that they weren't expecting. And you can get yourself in a bit of a pickle uh, if you start, you know, trying to please everyone, trying to please family, trying to make investments, when ultimately a lot of these clients aren't going to have this exit event again. Um, so you don't want to waste yeah. it. Right, so I'm going to segue into f- finishing up. I always finish in the same way. and I don't tell people this in advance. 
It's not, it's not even too scary, don't worry. <laughs> I made that sound a lot more dramatic than it is. Um, your top two things that you would advise families to think about when they are going through this exit process. I'll start with you, Elliot, because you've written more notes than Dan. The first thing, and I've mentioned this before, is who who is going to run the sale process? Who's going to run the business? I mean, that is a really, really important thing. And I suppose from the, not so much the legal point, but more of a structuring point, it's actually really, is this the right deal for them? So interesting. unless you need to sell, is what has been offered to you, is it the right price? Is going back to my previous point, is it the right type of consideration? Is it you getting too many shares in a private company? Whilst you might want to sell now, is it worthwhile holding on for two to three years? Is the market conditions right? Are you getting the right multiple? So is it the right is it the right time to sell stroke? Is it the right buyer? And I imagine that's we haven't talked about that, but that's something that you know, in the excitement of someone saying, "I want to come and buy your business," and you suddenly go, "Oh Christ, I'd, I'd quite like that that money." Taking that, having that strength of character or advice, I suppose, to step back and go, "Actually, no, I'm not going to take the cash now because it's not right for me or for my business or whatever it might be." Yeah, I think more often than not, what happens is that there is a lot of excitement when you have. And I've actually got one client now who's been approached by a exam, young guy. Um, and um, he's been approached by quite a high profile buyer and this buyer is taking him to lots of like sponsorship events so he's laying it on thick <laughs> and he's, he's not this guy's not naive he's highly 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 savvy I think there's a bit of excitement when you're in that kind of initial so he's not going to the event you mean he's going to the event <laughs> I think there's a lot of excitement when you're in that flirtation stage if you will but I think that once you start looking at the numbers I think people I actually think it's the opposite happens I don't think people get carried away I think they almost get nervous I think people inherently particularly the older the game, they don't like change. Yeah, right? Okay, yeah. So the only time it gets massively swept away, people get swept away in the process, is if they are quite early stage and they get a ludicrously good offer. That's what, and often they say this is actually really, really good. It's, they're, buying, they're paying too much, let's just get this done ASAP. Yeah. But often what then happens is the, t- the, the terms start changing quite quickly. Yeah. Interesting. Dan, your two top tips. My, my two top tips, I guess where we typically start to really work is, is post-transaction. And my two top tips would be, number one, take your time. Don't rush into any major commitments to angel investments, any D-rolls. Wait for the right thing to to come your way. And number two would be really think about the purpose of your capital because if you can iterate that effectively to a wealth manager, to an advisor of any kind who in some way is going to have influence over the decisions that you make with your finances that the best outcomes will be derived when there is a really clear understanding of what that purpose is i know that first tip is is really really important because often this is a new world a new life you know that, that they're encompassing in and they probably have more time than they used to more, more asset than they used to and actually just taking time to work out what your new world looks like and feels like before you make any uh, irreversible decisions or big decisions is is the single probably best bit of advice when actually everyone around you is trying to get you to do things straight away. Great. Guys, that was really interesting. Really enjoyed it. There's probably loads of things we could talk about with regards um, all aspects of this. Um, but hopefully it's given people a feel of some of the things they should be thinking about if they are uh, planning on starting and selling a business, which I'm sure lots of people are, and if they are even in the process of doing it or thinking about doing it. So thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Brilliant. Subscribe to the series to hear personal stories, 
learnings and discussions around real-life cases. It's an investment you won't regret.